to the Francis Farmer Show. This is, what, our third episode in the last year, and it's the one uh, devoted to the 2019 Seattle International Film Festival. Uh, it's just me and uh, Evan Morgan this year. Say hi, Evan. Hello. Uh, and as you, I think, can tell, we are really excited about SIF. This year. <laughs> Understatement of the year. So, I think I think we have to start just kind of in general. We we've talked about SIF and SIF in comparison to the Vancouver Film Festival, which uh, we also do a podcast about, um, and it's been like an ongoing discussion for the last few years. Last year, we thought SIF was was pretty bad. Uh, I think we're agreed that this year is worse. Yeah, they really outdid themselves this year. They uh, they uh, set the bar pretty low last year, but uh, limboed a little bit further down. So I have, I have some questions about why we think this is. And I have some theories, and not all of them involve just bad programming. Although that might be a, a part of it. Uh, it might just be us. We could be the problem. I mean, it wouldn't be the first time in my life where that's the case, but... I mean, we, we've been going to, to SIF for a long time. We've been going to festivals for a long time. And it's very possible that we've just become like so jaded by art house film and so, uh, so used to the kind of normal festival film that plays that we're really only interested in the the outstanding or the weird or the obscure. Do you think that's possible? Uh, I think that is likely a contributing, though minor, factor. Uh, okay. As many other festivals, uh, I think, engender a uh, sense of discovery in me that SIF does not, and I think maybe some of the other reasons that you're about to lay out in, in your theories here may explain why uh, SIF does not exactly engender that sense of discovery in me that might lead me to uh, roll the dice on uh, a few things that uh, could surprise me. But point taken. Um, yeah, I think um, there's, there is very little to discover at SIF if you've been doing this a long time and have, you know, spend all your, all year round watching foreign film and art house film. It's not, it's not designed to be that kind of festival. It's designed to be a popular festival, not a, uh, exploratory festival. Mm -hmm. Nor even really a cinephiles festival, right? I mean, like right. the, the funniest thing to me about SIF last year was the bumper reel that they had, uh, that they have like before every screening, the kind of advertisement for SIF, sure. um, which uh, they tend to have pretty like opulent uh, bumper reels compared to say like the, the clip show reel you get every year at VIF or, or whatever. Um, when you're the, at VIF, they use the previous year's <laughs> reel. <laughs> 
I can't remember if I was there for that or not, but they bleed together so much, I don't know that I could tell. But in any case, the the Sith bumper last year uh, was, like, the premise of the bumper was, like, a woman who is not really interested in movies is just, like, sitting on her couch at home. And I think she, like, gets a text from a friend or, like, sees on social media that, like, her other non-cinephile friends are attending Sith, and then she gets, like, sucked into the world of movies in this little bumper uh, and attends what is presumably the one Sith screening that she will attend that year. Uh, and the whole premise of the thing is that the reason to go to Sif is that it's a social activity that one can publish on social media that one has done, like someone who doesn't really care about art and goes to the art gallery once a year to, uh, to sort of feel sophisticated. And I think that Sif aiming for that audience and admitting more or less in their bumper reel last year that that's the people they're going after uh, is part of the problem. I mean, all my life I've encountered people living in Seattle who don't see movies year round at all, but every year go see one, maybe two things at SIF and are very happy to announce to me that they've seen one, one film at SIF. And uh, it, it is a, a unique model for a festival. I guess I'm not aware of any other festivals that operate that way. And, by virtue of operating that way, uh, I think it does not encourage those viewers to take a more active role in seeing films at the festival. And I think uh, the programming is is geared in such a way that it's going to allow these people to go see one thing uh, and not really dive into, say, like a program at the festival because there aren't really clearly delineated programs or a, uh, a programmer's picks at the festival because I don't think there's super clear identities uh, in the way that the, the films are selected. So, Yeah, I think that gets to my major complaint about SIF, not just as a festival, but as an organization, as a, a year-round entity in Seattle film life is I think it's it's actually detrimental to film culture in the city because it's so focused on jacking up attendance for these three weeks in, in May and June that and appealing to that kind of of Seattleite and I think it might be a specifically Seattle type of person. <laughs> I mean, I think a larger discussion, but yes, I, I think you may. Be right I mean, about. I, I've only lived in a couple of cities, but it it seems like a uniquely sat Seattle thing uh, to to wear like an occasional attendance at an art film as like a badge of of credibility. But <laughs> that's beside the point. But because this like this massive festival that gets so many people going to it. Uh, encourages or I should say does not encourage the more exploratory more you know eye-opening kinds of cinephilia that people who would kind of follow that path were they to go to SIF and see like a you know something like the the Asian film program at at VIF uh, were they to go to that at SIF 
and then want to follow through through the rest of the year going to see the kinds those kinds of films at the SIF theaters or the Northwest Film Forum or the Grand Illusion or just renting them from from Scarecrow those are the kinds of things you need in the city to have like a vibrant film scene and because that's not being encouraged by like the flagship film arts organization in the city it's just Seattle film culture has just atrophied over the last 20 years. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more with that. I think, uh, I think SIF could do a lot to build an audience that would be sustainable, that would actually spill over to those other institutions that you highlighted uh, if they targeted the programming more clearly if they had actual programs within the festival because the way it's presented is just such an overwhelming number of films with no real guide map through them uh, and no voice, I think, highlighting the kinds of films uh, or highlighting certain kinds of films for certain kind of viewers who might be interested in a certain, uh, I don't know, national cinema or uh, a certain kind of aesthetic mode, like there just isn't a roadmap through the program like that. Um, and so I think as a result, you get people who do go see one thing and the one thing they see, if you're just rolling the dice on any random film in the festival is likely to be not very interesting uh, and certainly not going to be a, a challenging movie because they do tend to favor, I think, um, things that operate on a very clear festival template as you implied uh, at the opening. Uh, and that just is not a model that I think uh, likely is going to appeal to you or me uh, much longer. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think there's a, a place in a film festival for the kind of films that SIF tends to program from other places around the world. They they target areas that have uh, a strong like ethnic representation in the Seattle area. Like there's a lot of Nordic films in Seattle or in SIF, a lot more than you would see at, at any other film festival probably uh, because there's a strong Nordic immigrant population that, or children of immigrants that, that goes to see them. Uh, there's a lot of kind of socially conscious filmmaking, both documentary and fiction filmmaking, and that is how the movies are sold by the film, the festival programmers and the festival marketers. And honestly, a, a lot of film people or attendees of the festival are going to see a movie because it's about like the oppression of women in Israel or something. Right. And that, that in itself is generally not enough to interest a cinephile like you or me, a social problem film. Right. Uh, but there's definitely a place for that, I think, at film festivals. It's just that that's all there is at SIF. It's not mm -hmm. leavened by, you know, the best of international cinema, which is what you need a film festival for. You need a film festival to see films that aren't going to get a release in your local theater or... Right. Well, and, and there's a way in which that philosophy is sort of condescending to 
the like national cinemas that produce these films in a way because I think it treats the national cinemas that produce these films as if they exist solely uh, to like address the social problems in their society as opposed to like organic natural cultures that produce all kinds of of art form cinematic or otherwise uh, that may speak to whatever those uh, sort of social problem interests are that the SIF audience is bringing into the theater with them. But if presented uh, in the context of, say, a genre film from that country or uh, just something that isn't so explicit about the subject matter that it's detailing, uh, might both interest them, interest the audience uh, on some level, but push them in a way. And I think it plays, they play such on such safe ground uh, by foregrounding the the sort of social problem aspects of all these films up front. And it, it paints a picture, I think for the audience uh, that that's what world cinema is. And it, it just is right. depressingly limited uh, in scope. Right. And it's like the converse kind of thing when they, when they program genre films, which I, I think we'll get to one later. Yep. That might actually be the only film we both watched, <laughs> <laughs> but but any any kind of genre film that comes from somewhere other than America is programmed for its zaniness or for mm-hmm. its ability to be sold as as wild and wacky and a midnight movie. And you're not going to believe how crazy these foreign people are. And I find that really off-putting. That's, that was like the the source of our complaints several years ago at the was it Trevisa? Trevisa <laughs> oh my god Sean you can't just bring that up like I, I, I gotta bring that up on every SIF podcast <laughs> I'm still mad about it <laughs> uh, but I, I thought of another reason why maybe we're disappointed with SIF and Uh, This might just be a logistical thing, and it's that for the last couple of years, they've had online screeners, which they never had before. You actually had to go out to the theater to see the movies, and we did that. Like Before I ever even met you, I knew you as the guy I would see at all of the SIP screenings (laughs) who sat in the front row. So... I'm like looking back at the list of films that I've seen at SIF since 2015. And yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think they were just better then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know It's that it's just that I like the movies less watching them at home or it feels like less of an event if I'm not going out. But like in 2016... Uh, Trevisa was was a film that I loved. It was the tenth best film that I saw at SIF that year. Wow! There's not a I mean, that, was one the, that was one of the best ones I saw at SIF that year. I think. Yeah, but, but. Th- this is the list: uh, Buster Keaton, The General, Chimes at Midnight, Dragon Gate Inn, Love and <laughs> okay. Friendship, oh. uh, Ernst Lubitsch, Heaven Can Wait, uh, Terrence Davies, Sunset Song, Sylvia Chang's Murmur of the Hearts, the uh, was it Sun Yu, the Big Road, the archival show? Oh, yeah, that's film. a great movie. Uh, and Chun Ji Wise, A Bride for Rip Van Winkle. And then Trevisa. Like, that, that's a great film festival. Yeah, I mean, that's, 
that's a lot more stuff that uh, is of interest to me than than we got this year. Yeah, and and a lot of it is like the archival stuff, and generally their archival stuff is better. But uh, for the last couple of years, they haven't been playing the archival stuff on the weekends. They've been playing it on Tuesday and Wednesday nights when I can't go because <clears throat> I have kids and my kid has ballet, and so I can't I can't do that. Whereas before, they would play them on the weekends, so I could go and I. We saw. Did you see the Apu trilogy when they played that? That was on uh, Saturday. I, did, I didn't see it there, but yeah. But a lot of this other stuff were on weekends. I think. I think uh, like Dragon Inn was on a weekend. Mm -hmm. and Heaven Can Wait was definitely on like a Saturday morning. Uh, I don't think any of the archival stuff played on weekends this year. Yeah. Well, and that's another way in which, on some level, like we're the problem to and to a certain extent. Like I'm just looking back through the list of of things they played this year, archival films, and it's like, okay, yeah. I mean, they're playing Lang's Spies, which is one of sure. my favorite movies, but a movie that I've seen numerous times, you know. And so it's it's not necessarily the the kind of uh, archival discovery that that's going to go pull me out in the theater. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would have gone if it wasn't on a Tuesday. <laughs> and I, I think the reason for that is on the weekends they're doing these uh, non-film festival event type things like virtuality, virtual reality things or like their short film programs or like a tribute to whatever character actor they could get to agree to come here. Who was it this mm -hmm. year? Uh, uh, was, uh, Regina, Regina Hall. Regina Hall, who's, who's great. But support the girls. Support which played the girls. In Seattle, is fantastic. <laughs> like last year, uh, yeah. played it as part of the Regina Hall. It, it, it played last year in Seattle, and nobody went to see it. I I reviewed. I think I re, I didn't review it actually, but I hyped it up a lot. <laughs> Couldn't get anybody to go see it. Couldn't get any of like my fellow film critics to watch it. That's amazing. But. I think we did end up actually nominating it. Enough of us watched it that it got, that she got nominated for Best Actress, but she didn't win, and obviously she should have. So I don't know. But then, but then they give her an award at SIF, and I and I bet you that screening was sold out. Oh, I almost guarantee it because I think that was like the flagship screening too that she was going to be at to you know do a Q and A after or whatever. So. Um, yeah. I'm almost certain that it was. Yeah. So I don't know. It might just be us. It might be Sif. It might just be the nature of Seattle. Uh, I think that is a, a large piece of it. And as we've talked about before, the calendar, the time of the year doesn't necessarily help them either. Um, I sure. think you could still find a, a pretty deep roster of things that would interest me to play. But, um, you know, it is... A, a tough time of the year for a festival. That was our theory last year because 2017 was kind of a down year for, for international film. But 2018 was a fantastic year. Like there was so much great stuff at, yeah. at Cannes and we saw like tons of great stuff at, at VIF in the fall that hasn't played here yet in Seattle. Like uh, Asaka 1 and 2 opened the film festival like on the last or opened the film forum on the last Friday of the festival. They could have easily played it. Yeah, that totally baffled me. I I couldn't believe that one didn't play. I mean, there are a few other cases like that, like Sorry Angel still hasn't got a run here. 
and that didn't right. play. And I think that's like a, a fantastic movie that would be a very easily accessible like SIF audience movie. Like it's a queer movie. It's like a, a very uh, efficient, like fun narrative movie, but is also sort of maybe pushing um, some of its like influences on the audience that would be somewhat uh, unusual for uh, the audience to be encountering. Uh, seems like a perfect film for SIF. I was actually looking forward to seeing it again. I thought for sure it'd be in here and it wasn't. And yeah, I think there's a lot of stuff like that that just fell through the cracks for. Yeah, there were, there were a few Chinese movies I was, I was hoping would make it here, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to knock Sif on that because there's so much chaos going on with Chinese films being exported to to film festivals with what's gone on in Berlin and Cannes. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't really want to blame them for not wanting to mess with that. Although they discontinued their their China Stars program, which they had for the past two years, we, and was actually fairly new. Ye. It was actually you know a fairly decent program. Yeah, no, it was pretty. Yeah. Uh, but nowhere to be seen this year. All right. Well, should we yeah, talk about an actual movie? Let's, <laughs> let's talk, talk about what we actually did. Festival dedicated see. to movies. So go, go ahead and start. What was uh, a movie you saw? Okay, Sif? well... Uh, I'm gonna. This is gonna be a, a pairing here because I think that they uh, these are two movies that uh, I think uh, fit together uh, quite well to talk about. Uh, which uh, the two movies are uh, Peter Strickland's In Fabric and uh, Jan Gonzalez's Knife Plus Heart. Uh, both of these films are uh, related in some way, uh, influenced by. Uh, the giallo film genre, which is a genre that uh, I like quite a bit. Uh, And uh, both of these films uh, are from filmmakers who uh, I think are uh, taking very different approaches to what a giallo in a kind of modern uh, world cinema context might be. Uh, in the case of uh, Jan Gonzalez uh, with Knife Plus Heart, uh, he, I think, sets out to make what is very much a pure kind of classical giallo. Uh, unlike a lot of other the, of these other neo-giallos, I put uh, Luca Guadagnino's Suspiria in that camp, the, uh, for, uh, for, I can never remember their names, uh, Forzani Catet. Uh, the right. husband-wife couple um, that have made Strange Color of Your Body's Tears um, and uh, Amer. Uh, unlike them, he is, I think, not trying to crib a bunch of things from the Giallo template and then construct a film from these little bits that he's cribbed. He's really taking the whole concept of Giallo, which is that it's a, I mean, it was a kind of low-rent genre made by people that weren't operating on the fringes of the Italian film industry, but there were movies that were made quickly and cheaply. There were mass process popular cinema. And what comes with that, I think, is both a high degree of technical competence, which you see in, in the giallos, but also a sort of narrative sloppiness, which is, I think, common to a lot of uh, sort of mass production uh, genre cinemas. And, a consequence of that is a lot of the giallos have these really incredible set pieces or shots or moments where there's just really insane lurid colors that linger in your memory. And then there's a lot of kind of like 
nonsense plotting around that narrative fluff that is just kind of there and maybe a little flaccid compared to the the uh, the sort of uh, the more electric moments in the movies. And Jan Gonzalez gets that you can't just jettison all of that kind of duller and maybe more uh, sloppy narrative material to just string together a bunch of money shots and call that a movie. And so Knife Plus Heart is uh, a film that moves like a classical giallo. There are uh, really incredible set pieces, including an opening murder that is, uh, the whole movie is very queer coded, but the, I shouldn't say queer coded, it's about a lesbian um, porn director who directs gay, gay porn films. Um, so it's a sort of queering of the giallo, uh, but the the opening has this incredible uh, murder that is uh, basically a, a, in sort of a gay cruising bar um, that is just really charged and really, uh, I think, pushing uh, against a lot of the the conceptions of what like good taste would be for a uh, queer film in the 21st century, and I think uh, it then moves from something like that into these kinds of languorous narrative uh, digressions that don't really go anywhere. There's sort of like sloppy doubling and plotting that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And yet all of that stuff is the reason why I like the film and why I think it works really well, because it allows you to kind of sink into the world a little bit, even if the world uh, is a little uh, threadbare on some level. Uh, and so when those big moments come, they actually like feel electrifying. Whereas I think uh, the Peter Strickland uh, approach to this kind of material uh, is about taking all of those moments that he likes from the Giallo films, and I think this is also true of uh, Forzani and Catet, and just stringing them along together so that you're lurching from one big moment to another big moment to another big moment and never really getting a chance to breathe. And there is no more suffocating film that I've seen this year uh, than In Fabric, which also has the problem of being uh, a comedy that is pitched at a, uh, a kind of, the humor that it's operating with is absolutely not uh, pitched towards me uh, as, as an audience member. The, the rest of the audience I saw it with, uh, I think clearly were responding to it. The uh, row that included myself, uh, other Seattle screen team contributors, Ryan Swen, <laughs> Thorns Garcia, and our friend uh, uh, Josh Cabrita was like dead silent, like this <laughs> little vacuum of, of silence uh, throughout this whole two hour movie. Um, but I mean, those were two films that I was glad that Sif played uh, because they were things that uh, I wanted to see. Uh, and I think that in the very least, Knife Plus Heart is something that would be challenging certain presumptions that the audience has about what this kind of movie is. Um, in Fabric, I found incredibly grating and boring. Um, but Knife Plus Heart was probably the best thing that's playing at the festival. Maybe, I guess nonfiction, I'd, I'd put above that, but. Yeah, I when I saw your guys' reaction to In Fabric, I was really glad I decided to stay home and watch the Deadwood movie instead. I've never seen Deadwood, but the Deadwood movie sounds lovely compared to uh, In Fabric. You should watch Deadwood. It's, it's, it's really good. You would have been better off 
uh, spending the last 25 days watching Deadwood than covering Sith. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't doubt that. Uh, Yeah, I don't know anything about Giallo or those movies, so I can't really comment. But I am curious about this kind of uh, like art house revival of of Giallo recently, Mm -hmm. and... I'm wondering if, because this is what I know, I wonder if there's like an analog to the kind of art house wujahs of the the early 2000s, like oh, yeah, Tiger that... and uh, House of Flying Daggers, uh, just kind of trying to dress up a formerly disreputable genre in in fancier clothing. Or it sounds like, which is literally the case in In Fabric, as okay. it is set in a uh, like high-end clothing store okay. um, about a dress that murders people. So it it sounds like, uh, yeah, uh, it sounds like the the Yan Gonzalez is like the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and the the Peter Strickland is the. Uh, was it like the the banquet the <laughs> the Feng yes. Gong movie with Zhang Ziyi that's Hamlet kind of yeah I think that's that's about right I mean there's okay. just there's no need to uh, I think mess with the uh, the formula of the giallo which Gonzalez understands he just does it with maybe a touch more elegance than uh, might have been the case if the thing was made during the genre's heyday. Um, whereas I think Peter Strickland much more clearly fancies himself as an artist with unique interests who's going to pluck all these things from Giallo and make something new with it. And it's his, uh, his hubris in thinking that anyone else is interested in what he's going to do with this material uh, that just makes the films, or this film in particular, I guess, just deathly to me. I, I liked his film, The Duke of Burgundy at the time when I saw it with some reservations and maybe a touch of suspicion. And I think, uh, this film really bore out my sense that, um, Strickland is, is something of a a poser. There's, there's a sequence in the film, uh, that is sort of like this little miniature experimental film that's using again, much of this giallo imagery, um, and playing with like uh, sort of digital textures and things that to me, like if he just made little things like that, like little 15 minute shorts that were playing around with, with these Giallo things and maybe trying on, uh, you know, different new ideas with these uh, sort of building blocks, that might be something that he could, he could potentially produce something generative there. But, uh, at two hours, this was just an exhausting uh, experience for me. But is has anybody made like the the ashes of time of of Giallo, mm. or the like Choi Hark's The Blade, just taking the genre in a totally new direction, or is everyone just kind of repeating? I mean, some of the, yeah. I mean, I guess like some of the like. Argento movies, one could argue, were doing that because even by the time Argento gets into the genre, like it's sort of a little bit past, or maybe the later era of of uh, Argento's uh, heyday in the late seventies, early eighties, the genre is sort of past its prime, um, and he's sort of in the Baroque period, I guess. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, of these newer string of, of uh, Giallo films, I, I don't know that there's anyone that's quite doing that. I just, I'd be happy to see a pure uncut knife plus heart style Giallo every year. Um, I probably will never see another Peter Strickland film after in fabric. So right on. And knife plus heart is, is opening in a couple weeks at the grand illusion, right? Yes. Playing on uh, 35 millimeter. And it is a, a really beautiful film. Uh, and it, it, it has the texture, I think, uh, of, of Giallo, um, in a way that in fabric also really doesn't where I think the, the digital really robs that film of, of a certain textural pleasure that, could make it maybe a little bit more tolerable to me. Uh, Knife plus heart is clearly made by someone who uh, wants to replicate that texture in some way. Um, and so I think seeing it on 35 will uh, will likely just uh, enhance that aspect of the film. And I do want to see it again, so hopefully I'll get out to that. And they're playing his previous film along with it, right? Yes, which I also quite like. Um, right on. Very different film, but. Yeah, I I would like to see that one. <laughs> yeah, knife plus heart. Yeah, don't see. Uh, all right, so I guess I'll pick my favorite of the ones that I saw that I didn't write about and I didn't also see at VIF, and uh, that would be Between the Lines which is one of the archival films. It's a 1977 movie uh, directed by Joan Micklin Silver. And, uh, you know, its primary selling point at SIF is the cast. It's got, like, a really young Jeff Goldblum and John Hurd and Bruno Kirby and Jill Eikenberry, who was was great. Uh, But it's set at, like, an underground newspaper in Boston that is in the process of being sold. But none of the people that work there really care because they've all given up on their ideals because it's the 70s. So it's like an end of the 60s movie that is also just kind of making fun of end of the 60s movies. Hmm. Uh, it's, it has no plot to speak of. It's just, you know, you think it's going to be about like journalistic ethics or selling out or like corporatization of media. It's it's not. It's it's just mostly just about their love lives and about how every single man in the film is terrible. Uh, some are terrible in charming ways, like like Jeff Goldblum, and some are terrible in like terrible ways, like like Stephen Collins, who also is like in real life, just a terrible person. Uh, he was the dad from uh, Seventh Heaven. I don't know if you remember that. I, I mean, I, I vaguely remember that that show was a thing that existed. I don't I don't recall yeah. specifically. Wasn't he like a priest dad in that or something? Yeah. Like, yeah, that's even so even more uh, yeah. strange that he's like a, or maybe not, that he's a, a terrible person yeah, in real life. No. But anyways, continue. Um, no, it's just, uh, it's really... Uh, just kind of a, a, a shambolic lived in movie. Like all of the sets are like, they look like actual sets that people live in or work in. Like there's clutter everywhere. There's dirty dishes. There's laundry on the floor. It, I, I kept trying to think of like how this movie would be made now and everything in it would look fake. And 
everything would be slick. All, everybody's apartments would be like super nice. Everyone would have ideals. And there's <laughs> none of that in between the lines. It's, yeah, it's like a, the whole movie out of like that one scene in The Big Lebowski where uh, Lebowski talks about how he was part of the uh, Seattle 7. But then he wasn't. <laughs> No, it's it's uh it's a really just kind of mellow messy shambolic movie with a lot of life in it and seeing uh a bunch of other like just like current release movies it's like a breath of fresh air to see something like that again. Was it like a new restoration? Yeah. Was that okay, why they were playing like, it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'd never heard of this movie before, but uh it's really good. I don't think I had either. I mean, I haven't seen any of uh, her other films. I know that um, Crossing Delancey is highly regarded by uh, a certain uh, like film Twitter set that we uh, cross paths with, but uh, but I've not seen that either. Uh, um, Loverboy used to play on like HBO all the time when I was a kid. That's uh, with Patrick Dempsey, I think. Yeah. Hmm. He's a pizza delivery guy who romances older housewives. Oh, I feel I feel like maybe I have seen a little bit of that movie back in the day on TV or something. But yeah, it was, it yeah, was a I, staple. Yeah, I have not uh, not otherwise, except for perhaps uh, fleeting memories of that film, uh, encountered uh, her work. Uh, that does sound like something I would enjoy, though. There's like kind of like a hangout movie. Yeah, vibe, like it's like uh, it's it's shambolic. Mm-hmm. I don't really know what that word means, but it sounds <laughs> like it should describe this movie. And John Hurt is really great in it, and and Jeff Goldblum is really great. He he plays the music critic, and Bruno Kirby's like like the young go getter reporter who wants to do everything the right way, and everyone just kind of rolls their eyes at him. Wonder if it's, it's cool. getting a release, a uh, home video release, as part of this restoration. Oh, I'm I'm sure it is. I would imagine someone has uh, has lined that up. Yeah, I mean that's the other thing about SIF's archival programs is they only program things that are going to get released because there's a new restoration. Right. Yeah, digital restorations. I think primarily. Yeah. Um, they haven't done a film screening. I think in in a few years uh, of a restoration. So. Yeah, um, the... That makes sense. The only exception to that was when they would play Shanghai movies, but they don't do that anymore. So yeah. Well, that sounds good. Yeah, I would, I would check that out. Okay, your turn. Your turn. <laughs> okay, well, I guess my my <laughs> film, my next film that I saw at SIF, uh, I suppose one could maybe also describe as as somewhat shambolic. Um, is uh, the most recent film by uh, Romanian filmmaker Radu Jude. Uh, I do not care if we go down in history as barbarians, uh, which is a quote uh, that's spoken by the uh, Romanian uh, fascist leader uh, in some documentary footage that we see in the film. Um, I'm someone who's a bit of a skeptic regarding the Romanian new wave. Um, for one thing, I find it very difficult to tell any of the films apart and the individual projects of the various directors who are associated with that, uh, new wave and, uh, who continue to make films year after year with impunity. 
are indecipherably similar to me. Um, I can't really uh, tell the difference between a, a Puyu movie and a Boron Boy movie. But uh, Radu Jude is someone who is a little bit more interesting to me, I think, than some of the other Romanian filmmakers uh, because I had seen a film that he made a couple years ago uh, called Scarred Hearts, which is uh, this really uh, lovely uh, sort of Joseph Roth or uh, Stefan Zweig-like portrait of this sort of Europe between the wars, this middle middle Europe um, that is uh, populated by, uh, you know, a lot of Jewish people uh, who clearly uh, will not survive uh, the uh, impending uh, future that awaits them and is, I think, a, a very moving uh, sort of tribute to that time in some ways in the same way that, like, the Grand Budapest Hotel is on some level, but more specifically rooted in in time and place and in in Jewish culture, uh, and is shot in a in a very beautiful sort of four three um, uh, style that uh, is playing with uh, a lot of the colors of of this uh, sanatorium that it takes place in, and the sanatorium has sort of different levels where the further up you go in the sanatorium. I think it's further up, maybe it's further down, I can't remember, the, the, like the more sick you are and the, each of the levels kind of has like a unique uh, texture and light to it. Uh, and so the main character sort of moves uh, up and down the levels as he becomes sicker and sicker over the course of the film. Anyways, all of which is to say that Ryder Jude was someone who uh, was on my radar because of that film. And, and I was excited to see his uh, most recent film, uh, which is very different, uh, unlike that film, which is very uh, controlled, and it ha relies on all these fixed four three frames. I do not care if we go down history in, in, with. Uh, sorry, I do not care if we go down in history as barbarians. Uh, is uh, sort of like a Romanian episode of The Office. If the subject of The Office was uh, like skewering continued Romanian complicity with uh, mid century fascism, uh, and so it, it operates mostly as a comedy with uh, these sort of different layers of the fiction always present. Uh, my understanding of what's actually happening in the film, uh, which opens with the lead character introducing herself on camera as playing the character that she's, or the actress introducing herself, you know, indicating to the audience the name of the character that she's about to play. The film proper then starts and she's putting on a sort of uh, historical reenactment of uh, the of World War II, of Ro uh, Romania's involvement in World War II, um, sort of modeled after like American Civil War reenactments, which comes up throughout the film as sort of uh, like a joke, kind of that these Romanians are trying to do like an American Civil War style reenactment. Um, but she picks the Eastern Front rather than the Western Front, which uh, carries with it all of these different political implications because the topic of her uh, performance that she's putting on and, and directing uh, is basically a massacre that was ordered by the the uh, Romanian fascist leader of all of these Jews uh, who uh, were on the Eastern Front in Romania. And uh, it's very clear that Radu Jude uh, sees the Romanian populace now as denying their complicity in 
the murder of all these these Jews. And in fact, there's clips in I do not care if we get on history as barbarians of uh, like these kind of hagiographic films of the leader that were made in the 90s. Um, there's interactions with people who may or may not be uh, actually just sort of uh, random civilians on the street rather than actors uh, regarding the performance that she's rehearsing uh, and their skepticism about uh, her uh, desire to foreground Romania's uh, complicity in these crimes. And so as the film goes on, it sort of plays a little bit like a backstage comedy where she's she's putting this show on and dealing with the skepticism of, of the performers about her political intent and uh, her life at home uh, that she has with her partner, uh, who's also uh, somewhat of a caricature, I think, of a, a certain kind of uh, bourgeois Romanian uh, who has some... I don't know. So he's a, he's a, the the partner that she lives with. I guess not a partner. He's uh, uh, like he's she's really his mistress, and he sort of lives uh, a separate life from her, but swoops in at certain times to sort of take advantage of her. Anyways, the the overall sense of the film is is of this culture that Roger Jude sees as I think uh, very. He has a very skeptical eye towards Romanian culture, and as the film goes on, it becomes increasingly clear that as she's going to put on this performance, that the audience is going to see this thing, including politicians in the area, um, really are not ready for this confrontation that she's going to put in front of them. And I, as far as I understand, the footage of the actual reenactment that happens in the film was a real reenactment that happened, and that the story is based on a woman in... Uh, Romania who put this on and so there's sort of like live footage of this reenactment all of the stuff building up to it Roger Jude constructs as a fiction uh, but you arrive at this moment where there is a real confrontation with the Romanian public and this complicity that they had um, during World War II uh, and so it's a really like rich film in that way it's a film that I think doesn't work entirely because the comedy is sort of dry and maybe a little bit too easy in some ways. Um, but it did leave me with a lot to think about in terms of Radu Jude's approach to Romanian culture vis-a-vis -vis these other Romanian filmmakers who I think uh, don't really illuminate a lot about Romanian culture for me. I think there was a, a glimpse into something I didn't I've never really seen in other Romanian films in this film. Uh, and in that way, I think I sort of appreciated it. How does that look? Um, it is shot in these very long, uh, takes that are a little bit ca like intentionally casual looking. And there's a lot of actors. It's a very clearly like choreographed film. Like it looks chaotic, but you can tell that Roger Jude is paying very close attention to the movement of all of these extras who are constantly flowing in and out of the background. Uh, and so things do kind of play out in these master shots, but they're not the kind of like dry master shots that you would see uh, in a certain kind of, of like art house cinema. They're very vibrant and uh, he pays very close attention to all of the, the movements of the people through the frame, um, which makes sense for him about like a reenactment where you have, um, you know, all these bodies kind of like moving across this, this fake battlefield. Yeah. I think uh, it, I've only seen uh, maybe a handful of Romanian films and a lot um, are just like one each from 
like all of the main directors, but it seems to me that he's the one with like the most interesting visual style. Like a lot of their movies play out in like these long take master shots, but he seems to pay more attention to positioning within the frame than than the others. I mean, yeah, the way he does that here is very different than in Scarred Hearts, but I think that that's correct. And the fact that he's willing to be very flexible with the way that he approaches the the sort of uh, visual structure of the film is something that I appreciate. Like I said, I find those other films very hard to distinguish. But um, though this is very different looking than Scarred Hearts, it's someone who I think clearly has, in some ways, like a higher degree of confidence in his ability to uh, adapt his style to the material um, than a lot of those other films, which I think just take the same stylistic template and apply it to sometimes you know rather disparate material. Yeah, the one film of his that I've seen is uh, Everybody in Our Family, which played at, at VIF in 2012 and uh, 2013, one of those. Uh, and it's about a, like a man who is, it's a comedy about a guy who's supposed to uh, take his daughter uh, to the seaside and He's like late, and so his wife isn't going to let him. So he takes his wife and her husband hostage, and they're like confined in this apartment with like these like two or three rooms. And the way he, you know, utilizes this confined space with these kind of long master shot takes is really inventive and creative. Um, it's a good movie. Yeah, I, I do want to see his, any of his later stuff, though. Yeah, I do want to see his his earlier films, which is not something I can say for uh, the rest of the, his compatriots. So, yeah, that's the thing with the Romanian films is I've liked every single one that I've seen, but I've never wanted to watch any of them again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would watch Scarred Hearts again for sure. I mean, Scarred Hearts is like a very fully realized inviting kind of world like i said in the same kind of way that, like the grand budapest hotels or something like that like it's just an easy movie to, to slip into um well yeah. do you have another uh another film um yeah i got i got i'm gonna double up with two that i did not like uh and the first is uh let me get the full title here because uh it's called Invest in Failure, parentheses, Notes on Film 06-C, Monologue 03. And wow, and I thought uh, the writer's you title was a mouthful. So this is basically a James Mason supercut. It's <laughs> just a bunch of clips from James Mason movies cut together. Why? I don't know. Uh, it starts like it has a purpose, like it's it's shots of James Mason sleeping in his movies. So it's, you get a bunch of shots of James Mason sleeping, and there's a little like title at the top corner, top left corner of the screen. It says like twenty six Oblivion. And I'm like, okay, he's sleeping, it's oblivion. And then it's a bunch of shots of James Mason waking up and getting up out of bed. And I'm like, okay. And the, like, the title card changed to, I don't remember what it changed, the, the title. The titles continued to change in sequence up to like 12, I think. And then 
it skips 11 and jumps to like 9 and then keeps jumping around and then it jumps back to like 50 <laughs> with no rhyme or reason <laughs> very little relation to actually what's on screen uh, the the clips are cut together thematically so there's like a bunch of clips of James Mason eating or people talking about eating in James Mason movies or people eating in James Mason movies and there's shots of people drinking and there's shots of women being slapped and there's shots of rapes and there's shots of people being shot and there's no point to it at all and it's really obnoxious <laughs> I I really did not like this, and I well, love James Mason. Well, James Mason is is great. Is there like a reason? Like, no. Is there like a motivating reason for this film being? Like, I guess I just don't. I like James Mason a lot, but like, he doesn't seem like someone who, like, he's not like a structuring force necessarily in the films that he's in in the way that like certain performers are. Like, God. I mean, he might be. Like, <laughs> well, this one's maybe trying to illuminate the, the, that, the conclusion like... you draw from watching this movie is that James Mason is like a monster because all of his movies are about violence and wow. murder and rape and beating up women and eating breakfast. It's <laughs> it's so frustrating. I I don't understand why this is a thing at all or why it got programmed in a film festival other than, I mean, hey, James it, Mason, that's a name. It, is it like trying to, op is it like operating like an experimental film? I guess. Yeah, I mean, the, well, the, it's the, definitely an experimental film, but okay. like to what end to know the experiment? Yeah. Like you, you remember uh, the movie about stars that. Yeah, that Star, I like Star. I was thinking about stars. You're talking about this. Yeah, it's the same, same kind of thing, right? Supercut. But that one had like a progression like it it told a story of of stars in film right like, and it made you think things about stars and about how we think of the sky and how we imagine life in space and you know all kinds of things it, it made you think that did what an experimental film is supposed to do this one just made me mad it made me mad <laughs> at james mason and i don't want to be mad at james mason <laughs> i like him <laughs> so yeah. There what is the title? Sorry, what is the title of this? <laughs> Actually, I do want to kind of look it up. What is the title? Invest in Failure, Notes on Film, 6C, Monologue 3. Okay. And Invest in Failure is a line in the movie. It's something that somebody says to James Mason. And okay. I can't remember what movie, but it's one of the ones that I've seen. So, yeah. I did not like that movie. Uh, the other one I didn't like is uh, Barbara Rubin and the Exploding New York Underground, which is about uh, Barbara Rubin, who was an experimental filmmaker. Uh, she uh, hooked up with Jonas Mikas in like 1962 and hung around like the the underground film scene in New York. Uh, she was she like palled around with Allen Ginsberg for like a decade. She was friends with Bob Dylan. Uh, she's in like the, she's in a picture in the liner notes for bringing it all back home. Uh, she was friends with Andy Warhol and the Velvet Underground and 
you know, she was like this glue figure in the New York avant-garde scene in the mid to late 1960s. And then she quit and became like a Hasidic Jew and moved to France and had five kids and then died in 1980 of cancer. Hmm. Uh, so the the story is told by people who knew her in the 60s. There's uh, film critic Amy Taubin, and then there's, you know, other people, uh, playwrights, um, Jay Hoberman, uh, Jonas Mikas himself uh, is there talking about her. So it's, it's all of these people who knew her when she was an artist, and for them, she was inspirational. She had, she made this film called uh, Christmas on Earth that is apparently uh, like blew everybody's minds because it had a lot of nudity and sex, and it used two projectors to superimpose one image on top of another. Mm. And that is the extent of what we learn about Barbara Rubin as an artist. The rest of it is just like gossip about people she knew and slept with. And it's really kind of gross, especially when, when you consider that she got started on this scene when she was 15 and mm. was like just out of a mental asylum where her parents had put her and she had like developed a, uh, you know, a, a serious amphetamine addiction. So... I don't know. I just I just felt like gross watching this movie that that conflates like the you know the great flowering of avant-garde art in the 60s with the exploitation of this young girl with a drug problem. Especially Yeah, I mean that's just a, that sounds like a very strange movie to a make in 2019. I mean cause I think that that's a certain kind of that seems to plug into a certain kind of myth about that period, right? That uh -huh. is something that is floating out there. But it seems like I would hope that people have moved past that on some level. It also seems doubly strange that SIF would program that given I, their clear emphasis on uh, a kind of, as we talked about this sort of like socially conscious uh, approach to programming. I mean, that does sound pretty gross. Yeah, well, the whole the whole perspective of the film is that the teenage girls' like drug habits and and sexual relationship with much older men is cool because she made art, and then in the second half of the film where she leaves all that behind, like she'd been living on like this farm in upstate New York where with Allen Ginsberg, where she had like been obsessed with trying to have his baby, and he didn't want to do that for obvious reasons uh and so she converts to to judaism and she gets married and all of the talking heads are like appalled that she did this and they can't understand it like amy taubin who i like a amy taubin the you know really important critic she's in wavelength she's great uh is like she can't understand how she like betrayed her ideals by becoming a wife and mother and living in a house. I'm like, I can understand how a young girl could, you know, kick her drug habit and go for and realize the stability that she's of like an organized, you know, loving community and family. 
I, <laughs> I find that really easy to understand. <laughs> So, this is why you. This is why you were an artist in the '60s, Sean. Yeah, apparently, and I don't know if it's just that I'm old, or if it's that I'm like a parent, and my daughter is only seven years younger than Barbara Rubin was when she showed up on Jonas Mikas's doorstep. But I don't know. the whole, The whole thing just made me feel bad. So, and it might just be that I'm like allergic to this kind of underground film. Because, I mean, it seems like a really kind of phony revolution to me. And I think that's where a lot of the disillusion comes from. It's like all these artists thought they were being transgressive by having, you know, naked people on, on mm-hmm. film. And they did succeed in changing the culture and that we are much more, you know, less repressed as a society now. We're much more open, you know, culturally, sexually, racially than we were in the 1960s but you know the material relations of society have only gotten worse since then mm-hmm. so i don't know i'm i'm not confl- convinced of their heroism uh, I guess. that seems a perfectly reasonable position uh yeah. i think to take but yeah <laughs> what, what, were, what and I, were these like programmed uh, i guess like were they pitches like film, like, I mean, I guess they're like films about film, I guess, like, I guess like investment failure is very clear, clearly an experimental film and it's labeled uh-huh. as such in the programming. But I mean, the, the hook there is James Mason. It's like, here, here's a big Hollywood star with clips from all of his movies. So if you like James Mason, you'll love this. Uh, I imagine the people that watched it were like the same people that walked out of the James Benning movie <laughs> right. several years ago. Uh, the Barbara Rubin movie, I imagine the hook is that here was a female director that nobody has ever heard of that was like hugely influential. Mm-hmm. And they could have played her film. Yeah, that they were not going. <laughs> I, I would be curious to watch her film. I mean, yeah, I mean, that it does sound interesting. I mean, if. The, there may be some questionable heroism of the uh, the talking heads in that film, but I would also uh, be willing to venture that if they think this film is aesthetically interesting, it, it probably is worth uh, taking a look at. Yeah, and you know, Jonas Mikas read uh, like an excerpt of his review of it, and and it's it sounds fantastic. And I mean, he's Jonas Mikas, so. Okay. Well, I think I might check that out. Uh, Will not be will not be seeing either of these other films, uh, but should we uh, talk about the film that we both actually saw? Yeah, let's. Uh, do you want to end with that one? Sure. Okay. Well, you go ahead and start since okay. I just ranted, and it's like ninety degrees in here, and now I'm all worked <laughs> up. Uh, yeah. So the film that we both uh, watched, uh, which I actually just finished watching before we started uh, recording this, is uh, Legend of the Stardust Brothers, which is another archival uh, film that they play at the festival. It's a Japanese rock musical from 1985 uh, by uh, Makoto Tezuka, uh, which is a film that was not on my radar previously. Uh, and as we alluded to at the very beginning of, of this episode, uh, the pitch for this particular film to 
the SIF audience. Though I would say this is maybe not entirely SIF's fault because the film is getting a, a release by a U.S. distributor and they presumably cut the trailer together. Um, yeah, this is, this is the pitch for its U.S. release. Correct. A pitch that I think SIF is more than happy to buy into, but nonetheless, uh, they did not cut the trailer together, which uh, posits the film as, as Sean said earlier, this like wild, wacky, like crazy, you know, you can't believe what the Japanese are doing kind of film uh, that is the way that many of these films are often presented, which I think uh, does them a significant disservice. And also I think really misrepresents like the experience of watching this film, which Sean, you liked more than me, but which you compared to, I think rightly a, a sort of like Beatles, uh, you know, hard days, uh, night, uh, kind of rock film or um, like a classic uh, uh, sort of like high school rock film uh, in the American vein. And I think it really is closer in, in structure and its approach to uh, like mood and character and things like that uh, than it is to this kind of just insane, you know, wild midnight madness thing that is, uh, you know, unlike anything you've ever seen. I mean, it is operating on a template that I think is actually fairly recognizable. And like, yes, there are sequences, like dream sequences where a woman's head, like, you know, she sheds her face and there's like a giant brain, uh, you know, that she's walking around with instead of her head. But like, it doesn't register as something that is outre. It just feels like an organic part of, uh, this kind of fantastical like pop world that it's building. And like to me, the movie just seems like a pop movie that is taken with what are clearly uh, the sort of major pop popular currents in Japanese culture at the time. And if there's anything that the movie is doing, that's most interesting to me, it's I think tapping into uh, some of those, uh, those currents in Japanese culture at the time that it was made. Uh, and so I think it functions most interestingly as a time capsule on some level and not as this like wild outre thing. No, I, I, uh, there's nothing in it that you wouldn't have seen on MTV in 1985. If you were watching it, it's, it's just not that weird. If you if you know what the culture was like at that time which to be fair was really weird because like everybody making culture was doing cocaine constantly <laughs> that that aside i mean it's not it's not a hard day's night it's it's more like help like it is yeah okay it's weird but it's not that weird and it's nothing you haven't seen before although I think it's really good at being the kind of zany that you would have seen on MTV in 1985. Mm -hmm. It's it's got like the spirit of like the monkeys TV show or uh, uh, Rock and Roll High School is the other movie I compared it to. Just the kind of mix of of slapstick and and teenage rebellion that goes really well together. And like the only the only like uniquely like specifically 1985 Japan thing to it for me was uh, that it was actually a little bit political 
in, right. in depicting this kind of pop culture industry as a tool of like secret fascists and the government <laughs> trying to like uh, consolidate their power by uh, leading the masses astray with pop music, mm -hmm. specifically pop music delivered by like a, a pansexual David Bowie clone <laughs> singing about peace and love. <laughs> I like his song the best, actually. Really, but, I yeah. liked I liked all the songs. Like I, I thought the music was like legitimately good. <laughs> yeah, I think that's my biggest issue with the movie. I mean, I don't think music is bad by any means. It's just not exactly my kind of thing. Sure. Um, but uh, and I think that's sort of a, a prerequisite on some level to really enjoying something like this because the music is so central. Um, if the music isn't really just, you know your groove then i don't think uh yeah that might just be a generational thing like this is this is the music of my youth so mm -hmm. i have a, i have a soft spot for it yeah but i'm glad you mentioned that political angle because like i mean i, I do think that the kind of like japanese like pop idol culture like is its own somewhat distinct thing and i think uh this movie is is tapping into that on some level, and I like the um, the concept of them like becoming number one, and and they they have a whole song about that, and there's this, like emphasis on like being at the top of the charts, um, which sort of reminded me a little bit of uh, like Seijun Suzuki's m movies, which I think are also uh, sort of clandestinely political, like something like. Um, uh, branded to kill or pistol opera, which are both about like being the number one assassin, mm -hmm. but really there's this kind of whole like corporatist, uh, structure behind, uh, what appear to be all these like free actors who are uh, out there trying to sort of like prove themselves as, as the best, uh, person in their craft. Like it's really just all part of this like larger corporate machinery. Um, and the whole idea of this like ranking and, and of being number one is itself like, seen as i think a, a sort of corrupted concept um and yeah i, I think that's kind of like manufactured competition among among artists right to to increase publicity like to rake in money for the corporation and to distract the masses yeah i mean <laughs> I, <laughs> I i think that's it uh I thought it was like weirdly prescient too, because uh, I mean the the industry that it depicts is is no different from like the Korean pop industry today, mm -hmm. or the Japanese pop industry, the American pop industry. It's like all of every every one of these critiques could just as as easily be leveled in in two thousand nineteen as they were in nineteen eighty five. Uh, but it's also like a lot of fun when it's doing it. Mm -hmm. It's like the two guys are really goofy. The the girl who's like their fan club, uh, who later becomes a star That's on her star, own, yeah. is yeah. is is really cute. And yeah, I like I like all of the dancing. I like the music. I I just yeah, and it it looks great. I mean, it's like a very beautiful looking movie. It has. I think one of the more unique uh, approaches to like title credits that I've ever seen, which I actually really liked, like the film opens with the perf like a, the first performance that you see of the Stardust Brothers is sort of like after 
they've lost some of their fame. Like they're sort of like performing in a nightclub and then it kind of like flashes back to tell their, uh, their story. Mm-hmm. Um, and the camera like moves around the nightclub, uh, and like cuts to different objects. And like the objects might be like an advertisement in the nightclub for like whiskey bottles, but the whiskey bottles have the actual like credits on them instead of the label or like, it'll, uh, mm-hmm. push in on the, um, on the drum and the like, uh, front of the drum like the face of the drum has like you know the directed by credit um and there's just like a a kind of invention like that throughout i think the whole film that um does make it i think pretty fun maybe not quite as fun for me as as for you but yeah i mean there's a lot of uh of really inventive stuff that uh uh what's his name tezuka does with with the camera and I mean, this this was his first feature, and he was uh, he had like just gotten out of film school and was like an experimental filmmaker. So, yeah, he was making like eight millimeter films. I read uh, like that. I think uh, Nagisa Oshima like ended up seeing and sort of uh, had promoted him. He's the son of a, a famous um, manga uh, yeah. cartoonist or, or uh, Suzuka. Yeah, yeah, as well. So, yeah. So I mean, it's. Uh, Let's see. The, I'm looking at the poster on Letterboxd, and it says, Thriller meets Rocky Horror combined with Bill and Ted. <laughs> okay. And it's not any of those things. <laughs> no. So, I mean, uh, it it's, does like, have it's a, actually good. It does have a... Yeah, well, that's... <laughs> one thing that none of those are, I would agree with that. Uh, it has a uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa cameo, apparently, I read. I did not catch him, but apparently he... I, I wouldn't know him if I saw him. But yeah, I think I read that too. Yeah, it's, I mean, we, we, you know, kind of joked for years that, that the best movies at at SIF are programmed by accident. Uh, (laughs) And, you know, I think that that might be the case here. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's got a recent, restoration like it's got a pretty clear log line uh i'm assuming the distributor was shopping it around and yeah it's playing it's playing playing at japan cuts also and uh i mean they're not they're not selling it any differently than sif is so i mean this is not a a unique to sif problem but agreed yeah i mean it's a it might be a unique to america problem that would not surprise me i guess i can't uh being embedded in uh, in this culture, swimming in these waters all the time, I guess uh, I can't say for certain that it uh, isn't a problem elsewhere, but certainly uh, it crops up here. Yeah, and well, I guess we should mention some of the films that we saw that we had seen previously that played Sif, because I mean, we got to give them credit for playing nonfiction. Uh, my beloved nonfiction. Uh, I still. You saw it, you saw it again too, didn't you? No, I've only seen it the one time. A okay. bit. I just really want to see it again. It, it's actually opening here at SIF, I think this weekend. Yeah. Um, so I may go see it again. And you, uh, a movie that I'm still like find myself laughing about on occasion, just as like a random scene comes back to my my mind. Um, really and I think good. actually really a very fun. smart movie. Um, and you, you wrote about that at, at VIF, and I think we talked about a family tour and number one Chunging Street on uh, on our VIF podcast, but uh, 
a family tour I think I thought was just okay. Uh, worth seeing if you're like invested in like Ying Liang's story, the director of Wind Night Falls who got who's now been like banned from China because he made that movie and took it to film festivals, including Vancouver. Uh, but I, I think number one, Chunging Street is, is like my number one movie of last year that nobody else seems the least bit interested in. But it's something that I really, I really liked at Vancouver, but I haven't been able to get anybody to watch it. So including me, I have not seen it. So, uh, and then I wrote about some other stuff on, on the website. The Marshawn Lynch movie, I really loved. Uh, I recommend that. But I'm a big Marshawn Lynch about, fan. I don't know anything about sports. It's, you know, it's about race in America. Okay, well that's more interesting. I think, I think, I think even you, an avowed non-sports fan, would, uh, would like it. I'll it's, take your word for it. It's it's also a supercut, like like invest okay. in failure, but I mean, a, in that it, in that it's made up entirely of clips of Marshawn Lynch, either like interviews or or commercials he made, or like game footage, or just like footage of him like drinking Fireball on a parade float. Uh, but it tells a very. Uh, specific story and makes a specific argument about Marshawn Lynch and, and what he means and, you know, where he stands in uh, American history. And, you know, it connects him to this, like, long history of, of radicalism in the Bay Area and Oakland specifically, which is where he's from. Mm. So it's really cool. It's, it's, I like it a lot. It premiered, is a world premiere here at CIF, so... It will be making its rounds. And actually, I, I listened to a, a podcast interview with the director, and he uh, he complained about my review. So <laughs> wow, really? <laughs> not by not by name. Uh, the interviewer asked him like uh, uh, like how he how he decided which clips to include and which not to, and he's like. Yeah, there was this there was this review that I just read that that the guy really liked really loved the movie, but he was but he was like, why didn't he why didn't they include this one clip of of Marshawn Lynch playing uh, Mortal Kombat with Rob Gronkowski? And I was like, I can't include everything, which is <laughs> kind of out of context from my review. I was just wanted to link to that clip, and I'm like, this uh -huh. isn't in there, so you should watch this. It's hilarious, but. Still, it was very, very weird. Well, clearly, he, you liked the movies. didn't have anything else to complain about your review. No. So you had to latch on to something. So. <laughs> it was just re really weird. Like, <laughs> listening weird. to this interview, and I'm like, hey, I wrote that. <laughs> yeah, that is weird. That's <laughs> well, me. Uh, was there anything else that you saw previously that you wanted to. Um, yeah, actually, two of the other archival films that they played were films that I had seen um, or have seen before uh, that are quite good. Well, one, uh, Fritz Lang's Spies is one of the greatest films ever made, in my opinion, one of uh, Fritz Lang's many uh, masterpieces uh, and a film that if I had not watched it so recently for my own podcast, uh, which though dormant these days is, is not dead, uh, I might've seen uh, again, uh, but I didn't make it out uh, for that. But, uh, 
that's an incredible movie and uh, really the culmination of, of Lang's silent period, the uh, sort of like feverish quality of that film um, is uh, hard to shake. And I think the uh, sense of a like capitalist society, like spinning it's sort of like last dance before collapsing into complete ruin uh, that that film, uh, th that feeling that suffuses that, that film um, uh, speaks to me right now. Um, but anyways, uh, Spies is great. Uh, and then the uh, other film that they played that I actually saw the restoration of when I was visiting uh, Seattle Screen Scene contributor Ryan Swen uh, in Los Angeles uh, when we were down there uh, is Enamorada, uh, which is uh, a melodrama, a Mexican film uh, from uh, the 40s uh, with uh, Maria Felix uh, that is maybe not an entirely successful film for me. Uh, it, I think, has uh, some moments that are a little flat, uh, but when it really is uh, sort of operating on this high melodramatic pitch, which Maria Felix does very well, um, it's uh, quite moving, I think, actually. Um, and so uh, another, another film that I probably would have gone to see in uh, see if I had not seen it so recently. Um, but I, I'm guessing that one will get a Criterion release, actually, because I think the Film Foundation restored that, and they've been putting a number of those out, so wouldn't be surprised if that uh, that makes it uh, to home video in a nice edition, and I would recommend people check that one out. Right on. You, you, uh, you saw one of the Ida Lupino movies, but not both? Oh, I did, yeah. I watched The Hitchhiker, uh, which I hadn't seen previously, um, which is a very uh, taut little film. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that I'm uh, quite as enamored with it as uh, you, I think some other people uh, that I know. Um, but I mean, certainly a very efficient uh, little noir that uh, scratches that kind of itch that I have sometimes for um, kind of like a nasty little movie um, that I think is, is pretty... Uh, it has a pretty vicious, I think, understanding of American masculinity mm -hmm. um, that is maybe a little bit more, a little sharper than I think you get in, in some noirs. Um, so it's got that going for it. Yeah, I should mention uh, uh, two of the archival films that I didn't get to see because they played on Tuesday and Wednesday. It's uh, 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 Billy Wilder's One, Two, Three, which I think is his best comedy. It's really terrific. It's got a great James Cagney performance. I, I wish I had been able to go see that. And uh, I Am Cuba, which, I don't know, I, I might vote for it in that top 10 films of all time thing that's going around. That's, wow. It's, I love that movie that much. That's so, one of those film school classics that I've never seen. Yeah, it's 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 got a lot of that, like, film school stuff in it in that it's just packed with camera tricks but it's also just like a really compelling film about revolution about like the the social conditions that led to the cuban revolution and you know it's just it's just a great propaganda movie that also just happens to have like invented every Steadicam trick that Paul Thomas Anderson ever used. Rendering Paul Thomas Anderson cinema uh, obsolete.
obsolete before it even began. He really only became he's a, a mood he's a mood until, he, until he gave up the steady cam. <laughs> that that was when he became great. I might find it very inherent vice too in that in that poll. Yeah, that one's not a steady cam. Steady exactly, cam. exactly. Yeah. He he grew out of it. Mm-hmm. All right. So I think that's it for SIF for this year, unless there's anything else you want to uh, to say. No, I think uh, we can close the books on this one. Right on. Uh, so yeah, you can you can read what we've written about uh, the SIF movies we've written about at Seattle Screen Scene. Uh, you can that's seattlescreenscene.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at the end of cinema and Evan, you are uh, also on Twitter at uh, EB Morgan one. And yeah, I guess, well, I, I will be at VIF again. I think you're, I will, you're still, I will almost certainly be at VIF for some okay. period of, of time. Um, even, even if just to, to get uh, the online screeners. Were there online screeners last year for VIF? There were for the first I guess, time. Yeah, there were. Yeah, I guess there were. But there were it, not for any of like the big can movies, but for right. a lot of the other stuff, there were. So yeah, no, I, I will be at VIF uh, in some capacity uh, for sure. So. Right on, and and uh, it looks like uh, Sue Lonak is going to to join us for that. So that'll oh, be cool. cool. Who. Uh, she writes occasionally for Seattle Screen Scene as well, like uh, like our friend Melissa. She is a professor in Bellingham, so that'll be cool. It'll be her first biff. Thanks. So until then, uh, there will not be any more episodes <laughs> of the Francis Farmer Show. So thanks for listening. 